Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership Series. I am Jeff Nishwitz coming to you from perhaps far distant, depending on where you're listening. I'm coming from Tampa, Florida. If you don't know much about Tampa, Florida, know this. It has become suddenly, at least in the U.S., the sports capital of the United States. And I say that because I moved here about a year and a half ago from a city called Cleveland, Ohio, which is the Death Valley of championships. And since moving here in just 18 months, our hockey team has won the Stanley Cup. The baseball team has gone to the World Series and lost. And in a few days on Sunday, the football team is playing in the Super Bowl. So it's a surreal experience. Uh, We're not here to talk about sports, but I just find that fascinating. I've come to this new place. Uh, Came here uh, for love. Uh, A love that failed, actually. So uh, I leaped and moved uh, from the city I've lived for 35 years, uh, loving the new place, but uh, loving my life. I'm a, I'm a leadership guy. Uh, what I mean by that is I speak, I coach, I facilitate, I listen, I write, I podcast, and everything is about leadership for me because I deeply believe that leadership is the answer to everything that's happening in the world not just in our businesses, but in our lives, in our communities, in our families, our relationship. So I see leadership with a very broad brush and I, I think it, I sleep it. I, I think in my, uh, even when I'm asleep, I think I'm thinking about leadership. And the last thing I'll share about myself is uh, I've been called a noticer by a dear friend I think it's one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of myself because I am a very present person. I'm a very incredible listener and I'm very curious and I ask a lot of questions, but he said, Jeff, you notice everything. You notice what's happening in the dynamics in the room and in the person. And, uh, you know, I can receive that label. So, uh, we'll go with noticer for now. And thanks for having me, Jonathan. It's great having you here, Jeff. And, and even in our conversation for half an hour before we started, I just felt I'd, I'd met a bit of a soulmate and someone who's already inspiring me massively. So, so thank you. So, Jeff, let's go into a bit of your life. It's interesting you picked Cleveland, Ohio. My, uh, my late uncle, uh, who passed away at 100 years old, uh, was in the Royal Air Force during the war and moved out there with his wife and daughters and lived in Cleveland, Ohio for many years, but sadly passed away last year. But I have fond memories of Cleveland, Ohio. Um, but yeah, just your, your upbringing and how you've been on the journey to, to make leadership so much part of your life. Um, what would you pick out as a few of the stories and things that have shaped you, which others could go, that's useful, or I've got a son or a daughter growing up, that might be helpful to them. What, what would you pick as your story? Well, I've had, a, I've had a very blessed life and a bit of an eclectic life. I'll do the short version and then we'll, as, as I call it, we'll pull threads and see what comes out of it. I, I grew up in an unusual way in that 
I traveled a lot from the time I was born until I was eight. And it was because I was a baseball brat. Uh, my dad played professional baseball, ended up playing in the major leagues, which is significant, not because of the moving, but be, I, grew, I grew up in a family where my father achieved his childhood dream. And not many people do. Not many people live their childhood dream versus their young adult dream. And, and I never thought about that until the last 10 years of, you know, how did that shape me? And a lot of things in there. Uh, a kind of weird guy at 15 or so, I decided I wanted to become a lawyer uh, in the UK. It'd be barrister or solicitor. And I think, what kind of kid was I at 15? I decided to become a lawyer. There were no lawyers in the family. I didn't even know a lawyer. I became a lawyer because of my mom. Uh, my mom, I remember, used to tell me over and over, you should be a lawyer because you love to argue and you're really good at it. <laughs> and Right, Jonathan? And that is so real that about five years into practicing law, my mom sent me a letter and said, I really hope you like what you're doing because I know I had a big impact on you choosing the law because of what I said. And so I, I went on this path as a young man of saying, I want to be a lawyer. I know what it looks like. And I nailed it. I mean, I had this lifelong dream of, I want to be a partner in a corporate law firm. And at age 33, I went to law school, got the job. I reverse engineered it and I nailed every step. I got in a good school, good law school, summer clerkship. And so 33, I've hit my life, my life's goal. I go, now what? <laughs> and that's when the journey really began because I, I looked around and said, I want to be a part of leadership. And I looked at the firm I was at and the people in the leadership room. And I said, they're not going to let me in that room. And uh, it's because of who I am. And what that means is the thing I remember most is the people in the firm saying regularly, Jeff, you ask too many questions. Like, why do we do things this way? Or couldn't we try this? And I said, this is it's not a fit. So I said, if I want to have leadership, I'm going to go start my own thing. And I started my own law firm built that into a firm. Uh, so I practiced 17 years, 10 years in a big firm, seven on my own. I consider myself today a fully recovered lawyer <laughs> and that I've now done something else for 19 years. And I'll, and I'll just share this last bit because it brings us to today. People are fascinated by my story, I think, because they see the law as something you don't leave. And there's a truth in that in the United States, uh, the legal profession is a, is a challenging profession because the surveys say about 50% of lawyers wish they were doing something else. They're not happy, uh, but only about um, a small percentage will actually change. They feel very trapped by the profession, all the education, the income. And I chose to leave because I wasn't happy. I realized I was good at it, but I didn't love it. And that was a great lesson for me that I can be really good at something and not love it. So I quit and I went on a journey that became uh, one of the things I say now, Jonathan, and people say, tell me how you go from being a lawyer to this inspirational, transformational leadership, thought leader, coach, speaker. I said, well, I'd love to tell you it was a great plan, brilliantly executed, but it was really more like a car wreck. And that I was driving down the highway at a high rate of speed. I left the road. The car flipped a number of times, but incredibly landed on its wheels. 
The car is damaged, but drivable. The driver, me, is bumped, bruised, and even some broken bones, which includes a failed business. It was an incredibly sobering and humbling experience and caused a lot of impact in my life. But the car was pointing in a direction, and I drove in that direction. And when people say, Jeff, there had to be more of a plan, I would say, I will tell you, that version is probably 95% correct because there was no plan, but there was a calling in here of where I was meant to be. And I've been doing this a while now. And the last thing I'll share is there was a time that I was doing leadership from a perspective of X's and O's strategies and tactics. And I realized it wasn't my heart and it wasn't from the heart and it wasn't heart full. And that was the risk I decided to take about seven years ago to say it's time to bring it. It's trying to, it's time to really be me and share this message, an authentic, vulnerable message with the world about what does it mean to be, to be a leader in every corner of your life and really lead from the heart. So that's a bit of the journey, the I short version. It's a great bit of the journey, Jeff. And, and it's, it really resonates for me and it, it comes across in the way you speak about it, but in all that I've experienced in you. Thank you. So in that life journey, what would be uh, a moment that you felt gave you great joy and happiness and a moment uh, in, in your personal life or your work, which was deeply sad and a dark moment, but you learned something from both of them. T tell us about your learnings and the experiences. Hmm. Well, the first one about joy is <laughs> I have to chuckle because I have a lot of joy in my life. Um, but I don't know that I had a lot of joy early in my life. I, I was, this isn't about how I was raised. It was the culture of the country I'm in. And I think it's still prevalent that life wasn't about joy. Life was about achievement and life was about success. Like now I can tell you, I had joy this morning, great joy this morning, being a part of a conversation uh, one of the things that's most joyful to me almost every day is a conversation with another human being, just like the time we spent before the recording. That brings me joy because I love to learn. I love to connect with people. Um, and what I've learned is when you live in the moment, really live in the moment, all those moments are so precious and joyful. So I'll be blunt. I, I don't know that I can pick that moment. I will tell you a, a series of moments, though that helped me grow immensely. And it started in the spring of, uh, it was March of 2016. I realized that I was hesitant to travel because I was waiting to travel to cool places with someone and I wasn't in a relationship. And I went to Hawaii by myself and I had this incredible experience there and took a lot of pictures. And one thing I've started to do in my travels, I love the water. So if I go near water, I will, I will take off my shoes and socks. I will go stand in the water just to stand in the water. Like I just, I'll drive down the highway in the mountains and there'll be a stream and I'll pull off and go stand in the stream and I'll take a picture just to remind myself and I'll post it on social media. And a friend of mine saw the picture and said, Jeff, when I see you standing in the water, it makes me think about a little boy, like a giddy little boy. So I would say a moment of was in Hawaii, I found my little boy and my little boy has been on an adventure. He's like Peter Pan the last five years. 
when I have a conversation, when I go somewhere, I get to travel the country or the world. I get there, I'm like, oh, cool. Look, I get to be here. So I guess I'm full of so much joy in every moment. And, and have, dark, you, have you found have you found a partner to share your happiness with yet? I do not. Uh, as I said in the beginning, I I think I did. I moved here to Tampa for love, and that didn't work out. And it's funny as you say that. Uh, thanks for the question. I'm just going to be vulnerable. I I met this person. Um, gosh, several months ago, I was like, wow, who is this? Uh, tried to connect with her and she was not interested. I got the stiff arm. Uh, then a couple months ago, we reconnected for other reasons and started chatting. And it seemed like, wow, this is going somewhere. And I very quickly got this stiff arm. And I thought, well, this is, I, I respect where she's at. And just in the last couple of days, it's resurfaced. Um, and I'm excited about it. I don't know what it's going to come of it. One of the things I've really learned beautifully in my life that allows my life to be so rich and joyful and grateful is I'm really good at not attaching myself to outcomes Yeah. and just enjoy the experience and especially not attaching who I am or what's true about me based on the outcome. When people say I need to lower my expectations, I say that's ridiculous. Why would you lower your expectations? What you need to do is raise your expectations, but lower your attachment to the outcome. Yeah. That's the juice of life right there. I, I so love that. And that reminds me of that lovely stoical story about, I think it was um, Seneca who had a, a beautiful glass vase that he was very, very attached. Well, no, not attached. He was very proud of it. And it was worth a lot of money and it was unusual. And um, but he kept saying to people, the vase is broken. And they're, no, it's not. It's, it's OK. No, no, the vase is broken. And sure enough, a couple of weeks later, a friend of his went, this is beautiful, lifted it up. It slipped through his wet fingers and smashed all over the floor. And they, I'm really sorry. He said, don't worry. The vase is broken. broken. <laughs> like that, not attachment. I love that. And what was the darker moment, Jeff? Uh, two come to mind. Uh, one was early in life. I was 19. Uh, my, well, I was 21. I'm sorry. I was 21. Uh, I had a younger brother named Greg who was 19 at the time uh, who was killed in a accident. We had a, he and I and a friend had a painting company and he lost his life. He was electrocuted. Oh my God. Um, in terms of raw grief, that was that moment of grief and it had such a profound impact not always in beautiful ways in our family um i know that my my mother has now passed my father is still with us it's not surprising to me now as an adult they never recovered from that you know i had two other a brother and sister and i don't know that we handled it well we none of us ever got counseling in fact my brothers and i never haven't even hadn't even talked about our experiences of that until a couple of years ago because it was this thing we didn't talk about. We talked about my brother, how amazing he was, but we never talked about that time. So that was a very dark time. But I would tell you that the darkest time that I'm aware of is when I had the business failure and I hung on too long, frankly, and I dug such a financial hole that I ended up choosing to file bankruptcy. And when I went to see the lawyer about it, she said, Jeff, how have you survived this long? I said, because I don't want to do this. I, I really want to figure out a way to honor these commitments. 
said, Jeff, you're so, you, you can't get out of this hole. So I resisted it. And it, that took me to a very dark place. I went to a, probably for a couple of years of really deep shame that, in fact, I remember a relationship I was in at the time. I never told her that. And she had moved and I really hurt her because I wouldn't come see her. And when she finally asked, I finally did tell her. She thought it was about my feelings for her, but the reality was I couldn't afford to come see her. And she said, Jeff, you know, there's things you've done in your life that you've made mistakes that a lot of people would feel bad about. You can share those. But this one, I said, there's something about this. My shame around that failure and that bankruptcy was deep and dark. And what it took was to come out of it was my willingness to share it and to take responsibility for it. Because for about five years, I had a good story going. And one thing I learned about stories is that sometimes stories are actually true, but they're not the truth. Because I had a great story about what happened in the business and there were three parts to the story and every one of those are verifiably true. But they weren't the reason for the failure. They were contributors. The truth about the failure in the business is that I was arrogant. The business failed because of my arrogance. And it took five years before I stood in front of an audience and took and said that out loud, that this business failed because of my arrogance. And I thought I knew everything. And I, I thought I didn't have to do all the work because I already had a successful business. And that was the moment where I began to come out of that dark pit of shame so that I can serve others because I, I could never, any service I rendered up to that point was service to sort of fill my own darkness versus dumping out some of that darkness so that I could serve from a pure place from the heart. Wow. Well, Jeff, that really resonates. And I've got a story which I'll tell in your podcast one day about when I got it and when I failed and what I learned from it. But I won't do that today. Today's about awesome. you. But thank you for that. Really has uh, touched me deeply. And to move to another point, if you met your 18-year-old self and you are phenomenally coming approaching, if I may say publicly, to 62, I don't know how you look so um, so healthy and, and good, but we will find out in a moment when we talk about health, but yeah. congratulations on that. If you met your 18-year-old self and you said, hey, young Jeff, I've made lots of mistakes over life. This is my one tip I'd give you for living your life wiser. What would the tip be? Well, this is a... Huh. I don't think I've been asked that question from that age point before. Um, and thankfully I've written and talked to the people about it so I can share this now what I would tell him is your dad does love you uh, the way he's shown up in other things is not out of an act lack of love he's just loving you differently and I would say that because without knowing it, I didn't know it until I was about 50. I spent my whole life believing that I wasn't lovable because of a story I had made up about my dad. And if I could redo my life, I would want that 18-year-old to know that my dad loved me and uh, that I was good enough and lovable. It would have changed a lot of things in my life life but I wouldn't redo it that's the thing though because 
those experiences make me who I am today and allow me to show up the way I do and allow me to relate to people the way I do and allow me to have empathy that I wouldn't have had. So I wouldn't, I don't want to redo it, but that's what I would tell him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I get that. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. Whoa. So this is, this is really powerful. Thank you. More so than I think any of the others I've had and I've, done 128 of them so far uh, and they're all very powerful people with their own stories but the way you show up I just want to acknowledge it and respect you for it so let's go around the inspiring leadership compass starting with morals um, principles your values your integrity what you will do what you won't do and 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 what what have you done when you've slipped up and you've let your values go and how did you bring yourself back on course again a bit like mindfulness when your mind strays and you have to come back on course again yeah so uh that's an interesting journey you're going to hear a lot of numbers around the age of 50 or 51 a lot of things changed in my life 10 years ago uh that's when i, I think life is a journey but 10 years ago i went to a men's retreat that began to transform my life and got me on a a journey to a different kind of person and one of my awarenesses at the time was that I didn't really have values. I thought I did, but I didn't because I couldn't even tell you what they were. And I would have told you at that point that I was a nice, that I was a good man. I would have said I'm a good man. And what I realized about myself on that retreat was I'm not, it wasn't a good man. I was a nice guy that everybody liked but there was a lot of stuff in my life was out of integrity. I was not, not a good man. And the big one for me, the behavior that was showing up for me from some of that, those stories that I had created about my life and what, what was true about me or not was my, my interaction with women. I was often out of integrity in my marriage. I cheated in my marriage. And what I've learned about that is it's not an excuse at all. I did the behavior and I take responsibility for that. But I started to understand why I did those things. And I said, I need some real values. And so today, I, you know, I have four or five core values that I can tell you what they are every day. And I can assess my day. And I can make decisions with them, which I think that's the key to values. Do I make decisions with my values versus going back later and saying, hey, did that work? So for me, it's, it's authenticity which is being myself and, and being and trusting that myself is enough. It's vulnerability, which means letting you see me. Um, accountability, uh, doing what I say I'm going to do when I say I'm going to do it. Um, another one, big one for me is unconditional love, which what that means to me is not judging others. And, and the judging is a reaction. I think so many, so much in our culture as we say we don't judge. No, we're judging every day. It's, it, do I realize I'm judging? And can I catch myself judging and, and immediately, as quick as possible, pull that judgment off? Because the judgment happens like that. So those are the big ones. And I guess integrity, and integrity for me is alignment. Uh, and that's a really important one because like most companies, they have integrity as a value, but I don't know what it means. And they'll say, be honest. But integrity for me is, do my words and actions align? 
is my position the same no matter what side of an issue I'm on? So, you know, in this country right now, we're dealing with so much divisiveness around so-called political perspectives, but I'm realizing a lot of it's not political, it's actually values. So when people say, well, can't I accept your political view? Yes, I can, but I may not agree with your value that's underlying that. And so we may have a values disconnect. Uh, but back, the big piece for me is checking in to make decisions from that place. And, and when I slip up, because we all do, the keys for me are to make sure I, I do catch it. And a lot of times that means having people around me who will call me out, love me enough to call me out and say, hey, Jeff. Um, and a lot of them, they do it in a great way. Like they may say, I don't know if this was your intention, but here's what I just saw. And so I, I, I bless people around me. That's what I call it. I bless challengers. The biggest thing is I don't shame myself for it. I've realized what a shaming culture we live in, at least in this country, starting with myself. Uh, I have this idea for a t-shirt um, that says no shooting zone on it. Uh, either that or it says, um, don't shoot on me. I won't shoot on you. Because I realized the word should is like a shaming word. Yeah. Hey, you know what you should do? Or I say to myself, I, you know what I should have done? which is basically saying what I did wasn't good enough. And so those are my core values and how I catch myself and I give myself grace, but I don't let myself off the hook. So the key for me is if I slipped up, I want to look at well, why I slipped up. How did I miss that? So I'm less likely to miss it in the future and I'll, and I'll catch myself ahead of time next time. And, and I know I'll slip up again, but I'm really committed to the change. I will say this. This is really, uh, what's the word? Um, not confrontational, but tends to erupt, uh, invoke a lot of uh, reaction. I'm not a big fan of apologies anymore. Um, I do believe and they're important, but I also realized apologies are more about me. I apologize to you, Jonathan, because I want you to say, don't worry about it, it's okay which means we're okay. Um, and when I say this, like I get up in a group and I'll say, I don't think leader, leaders don't apologize. And I'll see this shocked look in the audience and I'll pause, a long pause, kind of let them start hating on me. <laughs> then I'll say, well, let me ask you this. How many of you are tired of hearing apologies and what you really want to see is somebody change? Say, yes. I said, that's my issue with apologies. Don't apologize, change. Yes, apologize, but demonstrate an action that you really want to get better and not do it again. You know, doing the same behavior over and over and apologizing for it is pretty useless. Yeah. That's what, I guess that's, those are my thoughts on values and how they work Profound. in my life and don't. Profound. R really good. I haven't heard anybody speak in that way. And that all resonates with me, particularly the, uh, the time when I'm looking for someone to say it's okay. Um, like in, I got my first marriage completely wrong. Um, some of my behavior, some of hers, but I certainly, I was a lot to blame if you're looking for blame, but I just, I sometimes wanted to apologize to her and say her to say it's okay, but she never will because she's so angry. Um, but I think I just, I, I know I have changed because I've remarried and I, I treat my wife really well. And 
uh, I'm, I'm there for her, I'm loyal, I'm faithful. And I, I know I can look myself in the mirror and know you wake me up at four in the morning, ask me a question about anything, I can respond and there's no cover-up story, there's no making it up, I'm just being me. And, and I, I love what you've said. We've talked a lot about meaning and purpose already, which is the next one, PQ, uh, P, oh. purpose quotient. Um, you've found quite a calling in what you're doing. And you, for me, you've got your Dharma, your life calling, which is a, a big journey. Uh, why do you now do what you do? And what, what really gives your life meaning and purpose today? Yeah. <laughs> I guess there's two kind of answers to that. When I, when I went through this process to decide to be more intentional about how I really want to impact the world, a couple of things happened. I, I went through a traditional branding exercise in my business, but it was a really deep exercise. And, and I chose a friend to do it. And my coach at the time said, I really think you need to pick somebody who knows you because you trying to explain yourself to someone new, they have to have experienced you. And I had a friend who had experienced me and it was a very deep process. And I remember sitting in her office one day on a couch. She's asked me all these questions similar to this question. Like, why do you do this? Why do you do this? And I kept giving these answers that I realized were really heady, but she kept pushing me and pushing me. And I remember this moment, I call it the drop. I dropped into the moment and really felt the question. And what came out of me was this with tears in my eyes. I said, I do this because this is the reason I have breath. And if I don't do this, there's no reason for me to have breath. And so th th that's the emotional depth of the connection to the calling. But the why behind it is, I guess it's from my own experience. I look at the world and I want to I grab everybody. And in some cases, I do want to shake them. I do believe that it's important to shake things up. I, I'm called the snow globe shaker. It's about shaking things up, but the shake is to say you're enough, and and even the parts of you that are broken, and there there are there, I got them too, are enough, and there's so much more in you than you ever imagined. We just have to let it get come out, and and I think that's what leaders have the opportunity to do. When people say, "What's that got to do with leadership?" I said, "That is leadership." Because leadership to me is all about helping people around you be better, not just better producers, but better human beings. And, you know, the struggle, I had a talk this morning with a friend who was talking about growth in her company and all the, they, they invest in their people and give them opportunities to grow. And I said, well, I have one question. I said, do your senior leaders model personal growth? She said, yeah, no, they don't. They want everybody else to grow. They think it's awesome for everybody, but they're not doing it. I said, you got to walk the walk for people to follow. You can't, the phrase I came up with recently was you can't ask your people to work on themselves until you're willing to work on yourself. And so I, the mission is to empower, frankly, millions of people to lead where they are to recognize they have incredible gifts to bring to the world and take the risk to bring them and to let it be messy and to feel some of the pain because unfortunately the reality is we don't grow until we are willing to feel the pain. That's why the U.S. is the most medicated country in the world. We're medicating so we don't feel this pain and we can stay where we are and survive, you know, suck it up through it. 
I don't believe in it. Let the guard down, do the work, and change the world. Um, wow. So that's yeah, that's my why that gets me up Thank every you. day and says, keep going. And, and, and when you get up every day, I imagine you have a good routine, which involves pushing some weights, training, keeping fit. Tell us a bit about HQ, <laughs> health and well-being, both mentally. What, what are your routines? What do you do to keep yourself at 62 in such great shape? Um, well, I'll be honest about that. Um, the last year, I lost some of that. I've got it back. Um, and I don't know why I lost it. I had a really good routine. Um, I think I may have said before we started uh, that I exercise, but I choose not to abuse my body with exercise, which means I pick exercise that works for me. So my routine is it's not always in the morning, but typically five to six days a week, sometimes seven, I just go for a fast walk. Uh, it's a very fast walk, you know, when people say, how fast are you walking? I said, you know, it's a 15 minute mile pace. So I'm walking. Um, I live in a beautiful place, so I can do it outside regularly. The other routine, I like riding my bike. So some days I'll ride my bike instead of the walk. And I do multitask a good bit, probably 50 to 60% of the time I listen to a podcast or a book while I'm doing it. So I'm filling myself up here and changing this. And interestingly enough, from a weight perspective, um, I'm a simple guy. I, I do push-ups, and uh, it's pretty incredible. It's it's called the ultimate exercise because you know it's the perfect weight because it's your body weight. Um, and I've evolved over the years. I started, gosh, ten years ago. Maybe I can tell you actually, it was probably 2005. So 15 years ago, I was probably doing four sets of ten a day in the morning, because that's all I could do. Fast forward, now uh, my typical day, probably five or five days a week is uh, four sets of 75. Wow. And they're diamonds, they're diamond pushups. So tell me People about say, Jeff, why is your chest so big? And I say, because I do pushups. Why are your arms so tight? I, think, I do pushups, I don't do weights, I do pushups. So that's my real physical routine. and. We talked about my wife, it before we my got wife on. is going to kill you. Do you know why? Because uh, as soon I had a guy who taught me Marshall Goldsmith's course, a lovely guy who, who works with him. I, I just forgot his name. Brilliant. Right Brilliant. He, he trained me in New York, not Marshall, but this other guy, his name will come to me in a minute. But anyway, he's 70 and his twin brother's 70. And they, there was a picture of the two of them surfing. And he said, I do a press up for every day of my, for every year of my life. So I, I'm 70 now. I do 70. So I'm doing 50. Uh, eight, I'm gonna be doing 59 press-ups every day and uh, 59 sit-ups as well. Um, but now, now she'll go, what did Jeff say to you? I said, well, look, Jeff does four times 75 every day, diamond press-ups. She goes, oh no, you're, you're gonna be doing that too. I said, yeah, I probably will. So I have to laugh about that. But you know, there's one interesting thing I've learned from that, Jonathan. When I started, I was doing regular push-ups and and then I wanted more of a challenge. So I was up, sometimes I up numbers, sometimes the challenge. And I started using those perfect push-up twisty things. Kind of got bored with those. And then I started doing diamond push-ups, which are, we think they're harder. But what's interesting is they're only harder when you've been doing the others. Because 
when I do diamond push-ups, now I'm used to those. When I do regular push-ups, they're actually harder. So the lesson I learned in that is that whatever we're doing, it's a new muscle. Yes. And things are harder based upon what we're used to. And that's why I'm such a fan of disruption in general and changing things up. And, and one of my new thoughts, I love new thoughts. I, I, it hit me about 45 days ago during a talk. I was talking to a team and I told, I said this, I said, great um, discomfort always precedes great outcomes. And I went, wow, that's really true. I'll better say it again. Great discomfort always precedes great outcomes. So if you want some great outcomes, you're going to have to be uncomfortable. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. And, and I tend to do the, the clock rate press up where you forward sideways yeah. behind you inside. Oh, and then the diamond and that, and because of course your muscle gets used to doing the same kind of press up every day. So you have to, as you say, keep the disruption going. Great. Um, IQ, uh, decision-making, who is, who is your sort of wisdom council of people alive or dead who give you good advice? Hmm. I'm, I'm blessed to be surrounded by a lot of those. Um, one, one of my go-tos is a, is a dear friend. He was also a coach for a while. His name is David Akers back in Cleveland. David is one of the most intuitive, strategic um, people. Uh, he and I joke, uh, if you called David right now without any, you said, hey, David, I'm Jonathan. Who's the best questioner you know? He would say me. I'm, I'm not, that's just, if that sounds arrogant, i I can own that. I'm really good at questions. I've learned how to really get good at questions. And David would say he's the second best he knows. <laughs> and I need people like that in my life. Um, so David comes to mind. Um, I, I Actually, a new friend of mine. Uh, I, she was just on this program we did this morning. Her name is Jana Etienne. Uh, she does training on uh, diversity and inclusion. And from the moment I met her, which was just reaching out because she seemed interesting. I've really learned a lot from her and, and around my journey of becoming more aware around diversity, inclusion, and difference and privilege. Just, we, it's not like I, we just interact and I learned a lot from her because she's willing to be really honest with me. And she does something that's so rare is, uh, and she's named it, which is extend grace. So, if I do or say something that she disagrees with, she'll hear it with grace and offer me her perspective. So I don't feel attacked. I don't feel judged. I, and I'm very open to learning. So she's a new friend, but I, I will tell you, I am incredibly blessed by people in my life. And if, if I took, I could take the whole hour of our conversation and name people in my life yeah. and how they still impact me every day. And I really believe that I attract that. Yeah. because I want those kind of people in my life. Because I, I don't believe in coincidence. Someone no. asked me that once. I said, I actually don't believe in it at all. It doesn't make sense. I believe in synchronicity, but I do not believe in coincidence. And these people aren't a coincidence. And of course, it's so interesting that people go, hey, that's an amazing coincidence. You go, the word coincidence means it's supposed to meet. It's supposed to happen. So it's not amazing at all. It's what meant to happen. So for example, we're meant to be on this call. And Definitely. I know that you and I will stay in touch and I'll probably be using time where I coach you and you coach me. That's my, that's my wish for us. 
Right uh, on, right on, Jonathan. We, we alternate in, in just doing some time to think with each other. I'll, I'll tell you about that another day. Um, conscious, you've got another meeting after this, so I'll just speed up for the last few because they're all quite important. Q, um, if there was, you know, a tip that has helped you develop your emotional and social intelligence, and many of our clients have high IQ, but they haven't, they've underdeveloped EQ. What, what would be one thing that, you know, here you are, a noticer, great questions, but what is a tip that you've passed on to others that would help them develop their EQ? A couple. One, I would invite them to think about not just emotional intelligence, but emotional awareness. That's one. Another key piece here without using, you don't have to use the word emotional with it. Uh, be willing to take full responsibility for the impact you create. Because mm -hmm. most of the impact we create will be emotional, but our, often our default is even if we learn about it, we either ignore it or when we do learn about it, we say, well, that wasn't my, what I meant. That wasn't my intention. Well, that tells me you're not emotionally aware or intelligent. Um, and and be, be genuinely curious. And, and the fourth one is a little complex, but I'll simplify it. Don't believe your first answers. Because when it comes to our emotions, especially the emotions that we label as negative, and I don't believe emotions aren't positive or negative, but we've labeled them like sadness is bad, anger is bad, fear is bad, you know, happiness is good. Um, no, they're just emotions. But what happens is we're dishonest in our answers. And one of the ways I have shifted that through different questions is I assume the thing that I'm likely to avoid. So let me give you a very specific example. And this is the one to use it most often is fear. If you're in a scenario, whatever it is, and it's not life or death. So it's not legitimately fight or flight going on. Most people, if you said to yourself, am I afraid right now? Your answer is going to be no, because your brain will tell you, of course not. It will logic, logicize it and come up with an answer that's rational, not emotionally based. So for me, I, the question I ask myself, typically when I'm not making the progress I want to meet, when I'm uncomfortable, I don't say, am I afraid? I say, Jeff, what are you afraid of? Because what I've learned through science is that when you ask your brain a question, you ask or someone else asks, your brain answers the question honestly and automatically. So when I say, Jeff, what are you afraid of? Boom, the answer comes. And I deal with that versus, are you afraid? Oh, no, no, it must be something else. I'm, I'm doing, I've just got too many things on my plate. I love it. So those are a handful of tips around yeah. emotional intelligence. Very rich. And, and for me, very new. I haven't heard those, but I, I love them all. Um, resilience. How have you picked yourself up in time of adversity? What one tip would you give to people about resilience? Um, that's an easy one because I've been, I have a, a, a LinkedIn contact that he, he is about resilience. And so he posts a lot and I interact a lot with him with comments. Here's the thing. Resilience is intentional. It is not an accident. Uh, there was an article that someone posted recently. I forget where that said one of the gifts of COVID is that millions of people are more resilient than they were a year ago. I'm sure some are, but most people are not more resilient because of COVID. What I've learned is we just learn to survive things. 
but surviving things is not resilience. Resilience is a purposeful, intentional process where I am better prepared and I can navigate that situation differently because of it, not suck it up and get through it. That's not resilience. That's survival mentality. That's just gutting it out, which is not resilience. And resilience is very holistic. And if you think about exercise, you know, we talked about it. You know, when I do my push-ups the norm, the standard way, I build up my resist, my resilience. Those muscles become resilient to that. Then when I switch, it's harder because those muscles were resilient, but they're not resilient to this. So we've got to have the wheel. Resilience has got to be all the things you're talking about. And it's being more intentional, more purposeful, and getting to the core of what is in, in there versus just covering it up with, hey, I sucked. I got through it again. Yeah. That's not how it's just not healthy. That's, that's lovely. Love it. Brand reputation image impact BQ. Um, what, what one bit of 360 feedback have you had recently that you go, that's really damaged my brand and I don't want to be thought of like that. And, and therefore I'm going to behave differently. Hmm. So I didn't get it from someone else but a couple of feedback pieces of feedback caused me to see it. Uh, and it's around diversity and inclusion that I realized that when I talk about my journey in diversity and inclusion, and it's an ongoing journey, I realized I was communicating in a way that was almost saying, look at me, look how awake I am and look how much better I am than you. I know that wasn't my conscious intent. I, I believe now that there was probably some unconscious intent. So it's caused me to change how I have the conversations with others so that I can communicate my message without having it be about me. Yeah, great. So last three questions, legacy, a book, and then your, your final recording that we're going to do a top tip. So what would you like your legacy to be in your lifetime, not after your lifetime? Hmm. That's actually pretty easy. I'm just thinking about the words. What my want for my legacy today is that people experience me and they walk away from an interaction with me saying two or three things. Um, I feel better about who I am because Jeff helped me see a part of myself that I hide away because I don't trust it. So they see the best parts of themselves through my eyes and how I see them is one. A big one is Jeff is safe. I can bring all of me, the best of me, the worst of me, the ugliest of me, the most frightened of me, the most shameful of me. And Jeff's not going to judge me. He's just going to hold me. Uh, metaphorically and emotionally and spiritually, he'll hold this space for me. And uh, I guess the other legacy piece is that more people from interacting with me will start to live their life from a place that I do now, understanding that everything, including me, is already okay. 
I, I'm not, doesn't mean I'm not going to work on myself or work on my business or my, I'm not going to work. I'm going to keep working on the journey, but I used to think, have this belief that everything will be okay. And actually it's funny. You <laughs> think about this. It was May of 2019. I, I was in Ireland co-leading a men's retreat. One of these retreats that I went to 10 years ago. And a lot of the men there were from the UK and I remember going into that weekend, my philosophy was everything will be okay, guys, just settle down. And I was sitting in this circle with the staff and I said, for the first time I'd ever said it, everybody got, they get all amped up, all this stuff, we got to do all this stuff. These men are coming. Oh my God, we're going to get it right. And I said, guys, stop for a minute. Remember this, everything is already okay. This has already happened and it hasn't but it's already okay and it's beautiful and it's going to be flawed and messy, but it's, everything's okay already. And if I can have people live and just even have a moment of feeling that way, that's a legacy I'd love to be a part of. Wow. Love it. So final two, uh, uh, a book. book. Yeah. <clears throat> I don't know if I have it here. If I do, cause it might be close by. I do not have it here. I think I gifted it to someone. Uh, the book is called The Buddha and the Badass by a guy named Vishen Lakani. He's the founder of an organization called Mind Valley. Their mission is to become the most impactful, transformational personal growth organization in the world. And his book is just so, it's just like it sounds. It's sort of this, it's not really Eastern and Western, but it a little is. It's kind of like, what is that, that Buddha mindset of just in the moment, in the present, and at the same time, what does it mean to be a badass and to be bold and to just be who you are and take risk? And so, and I love that because I feel like on the inside, in here, I'm the Buddha, and up here, I'm the badass. Um, I just resonated with it, and it's one of the best things I've read in a long time, if you want to do the work inside out. Yeah. Well, I, I'm dyslexic, so... Reading is quite hard for me. I can do it, but but I I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. So I'm hoping that's an audiobook, and I will. It is. Because I listen to it. Definitely download it. Okay, and then I'd love you to to once again introduce yourself as you did so beautifully at the beginning, very briefly, just with your name, and then give us a top tip, a practical top tip um, that that people can take away to end the show. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I am Jeff Nishwitz, and my top tip for today is about a topic that my guess is every one of you thought about today. And if, if you went through today and didn't use this word, then it's a miracle. And the word is stress. Uh, by the way, a quick aside, stress is not an emotion. It's a thought process. So when someone says, how do you feel? You say, I feel stressed. No, there's some other feeling in there. But I want to focus on stress because what I've learned is that stress is optional. And you can tr literally live your life with little or no stress by embracing this tip, which is that number one, stress is a choice. And a bunch of you said, wait, blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I'm going to not be stressed. No, no, wait, stay with me. Stress comes when we're trying to control things we don't control. And what I've learned in my life is that I only control really one thing, and that is me. I control my actions most of the time. I have the ability to control my thinking 
pretty shift it pretty quickly. I can adjust my emotions in, in a good way, not to turn them off, but to like, if I feel something coming off to shift how I'm experiencing it, this is what I control. I do not control a single thing outside of myself and none of you do. And you all learned this lesson during COVID because so many people believe that they actually controlled things outside of themselves. You influence things outside of yourself. You influence people outside of yourself. You do not control them. And I'm here to tell you that every single thing you stress about is something you don't control. Because once you find out what you control, you take action around that. We don't feel stress when we're in action. So you start taking a look at that. You're going to see that when you're stressed, it's about something you don't control. And when you realize that, you can let the stress go, focus on what you do control, and get into action. Or choose to not be in action, but make a decision. And that decision lets the stress drift away. So that's my tip. It's an excellent tip. And Jeff, it's been a real pleasure having you on the, the, uh, the series. You've shared so much wisdom, and we will continue in touch. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.